Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash NFL. The NFL Draft is coming up on April 23rd, and I have got you covered. It's Ross Tucker. Former NFL player, host of the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, the College Draft Podcast, which is obviously huge right now, the Fantasy Feast Podcast, and the Even Money Podcast, where you can learn what draft-related bets you should make over at betonline.ag. You can check out all of those shows at rostucker.com, Podcast One, or wherever podcasts are found. Hey guys, with currently no NBA, no NHL, and no MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you would be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on, from their online casino to poker and blackjack, as they are bringing the Vegas to you. You missing the NFL like we are? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations that you can wager on. If you're into entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. For all of my NFL football fans, following the upcoming draft, stay tuned through the end of the episode for Ross Tucker's expert draft analysis presented by Bet Online. Visit the website or use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering solution. Visit our good friends and exclusive partner at Podcast One, Bet Online, to take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Sign up for free and make sure you use the promo code Podcast One to sign up for your bonus. Visit betonline.ag and don't forget the promo code Podcast One for your sign up bonus. It's Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. <laughs> Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, fam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like the ball, like the ball season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Pelazzolo here with Sam Monson. Sam, you get your audio going? Yeah, started it. Great. Me too. We're ready to go. 
Uh, we are one week away from draft night. Can you believe it already, Sam? Kind of already. Already, yeah. It's been it's been going a while, Steve. I, I'm kind of ready. Kind of ready. I could use one more week. One more week of draft buzz and prep. Um, we are in scout anonymous scout season. Mm. I mean, this is this is their time to shine. I mean, those guys. Listen, if you don't understand the effort that scouts put in. They are traveling about 270 days a year. They're on the road. And this is their time to shine. This is the time they've been preparing for so that they can tell people, this guy's got a bad face. Or this guy eats too much. Doesn't love football enough. Makai Becton. I mean, this is their time to shine, Sam. This is their week. See, the thing is, everyone... You know, whether it's an office environment, whether it's just a group of people around, everybody knows the one guy who doesn't get to say everything he wants to say because most of what he says is dumb, right? And everyone <laughs> ignores that guy. That is anonymous scouts. Who's and that guy the in meeting our former is, office? Right. And whatever the meeting is, you know, the scouting meeting in the NFL team, nobody's listening to that guy and he can't get to get out all of his idiotic takes because everybody knows they're absurd. And suddenly he's found someone that not only is is okay to let him jabber on and give his crazy take, but is actually eager to hear it because he's going to write it down and throw it out there into the world. Anonymous scouts, by definition, are the guys that nobody is listening to, and you shouldn't be listening to them either. So we're really going to get into all the guys that we really like, the PFF, most underrated players, the guys who are higher on than most. But just to finish off this whole scout thing, it's kind of like the old saying, like the... Uh, the C student at med- medical school, what do you call him? You call him doctor, right? I mean, it's like a doctor's a doctor. A scout's a scout. Like, there's different levels of scouts, but uh, a reporter's looking for – it's just any scout. Any scout could say anything that they want. It's like, oh, here, here's what he said. There's literally thousands of scouts out there. Well, it's more like that that um, adage of those who know don't talk and those who talk don't know. I, I suspect that's far more accurately what it actually is. If you're getting quotes – from a legitimate scout, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And if you're talking to a legitimate scout, he's not telling you anything. All right, let's get to the guys that we are higher on than most. It is the PFF most underrated team one week out from the NFL draft. Every year we try to reiterate, hey, our process is different. It's different and evolving. Uh, I I love the fact we have three different podcasts right now at PFF, right? We have ours, uh, the flagship, Sam, calls the flagship. Of PFF. Four is that podcasts. Four with fantasy. Well, fantasy. Yes. Um, and college, right? Is, that co- is the college one sticking around? Um, uh, I don't know. So four podcasts, but three that are focused on non-fantasy topics. Can I say that? Um, we're the flagship. Now we So we have our own kind of style. Mike Renner and Austin Gale. Renner's, you know, that it's two for one drafts and Renner's like in the trenches doing more of a, a scouting take. And he's the essentially the author of the twelve hundred page plus uh, plus page draft guide. And then you have the forecast, which is taking a more analytically driven approach. And I love it because we all have slightly different angles on how we do this. And we're still taking in more information and it all accumulates into this PFF draft board, which is going to look a little different than most. Uh, because of this difference in process. Yeah, and, you know, part of this is is an evolving process from when we first did college football back in 2014 with no real understanding at all of how those grades would translate to the NFL level 
you know, we've got subsequent year on year on year of just building these data points and, and understanding how the transition works. So we're still, you know, far from having a complete understanding of what the, the transition process should be and how, it, how everything pieces together. But we're way further ahead than we were when we first started this and have a, you know, a much better understanding of what to focus on, of what to lean on, of, you know, which data points to pay attention to and which things to kind of throw out as noise in all this process. All right, here we go. Let's go through some of the players that we like more than most. Let's start with Jordan Elliott, the interior defensive lineman from Missouri. I don't, again, I keep saying this over and over again. I don't know exactly where the NFL values these guys. I don't read Mel Kuyper's box usually. You know, I kind of get more snippets from those things. I try to stay laser focused on, on my analysis and not get swayed. But I don't think I've seen too many people talk about Jordan Elliott as a first rounder. And even in our mock draft simulator, which is awesome, by the way, over at PFF.com, seems like he's always available at 65, 70, 75. So that's based off the consensus board. We're sitting here saying he's a first-round player, and he's a lot closer to Javon Kinlaw and Derek Brown than he is the next tier of interior defensive linemen. Uh, He's a legitimate first-round talent coming out of Missouri. Well, particularly as there's now talk going on about um, injury concerns when it comes to Kinlaw. So his knee has been an issue. There's also talk that there's, I think it's a hip, that's also uh, a potential long-term problem for him. So if Kinlaw was, was our sort of consensus top interior defender on the board because he's a better pass rusher, Derek Brown has his concerns because he isn't a great pass rusher and this idea that his ceiling is an Akeem Hicks type of player and there just isn't enough pass rushing upside there. Like the next guy is Jordan Elliott. Like at that point, his value starts to go up because he becomes, um, you know, potentially a higher upside, cleaner prospect than those two. And that really propels him into the first round conversation. I'll let you get into your Jordan Elliott notes because I I see your notes and some of them are fantastic, but I'll let you you know, pass them along. Um, All I know is, go ahead. Some of them are also, you know, kind of funny, right? Or designed to be kind of funny, not necessarily 100% serious. And I don't know if it's funnier if I read your thoughts or if you try to convey them into into real (laughs) thoughts, you know. I think you should probably read the ones that are designed to be funny. Okay, well, let's start by this. The The first Jordan Elliott bullet point from Sam, who wears number one, Elliott. Number one is slimming. Makes people underestimate his size. Yeah. I mean, he's a big guy. It's true. So when I'm watching him, first off, because he plays with great pad level and he's got great get off and all that stuff. And you're thinking like penetrating three technique, kind of like your classic undersized defensive tackle. And and then, you know, a lot of times I watch a guy and then I'll go back and say, okay, what what is he listed at? You know, or what did he what did he do at the combine and everything? He came in at six, four, three, oh, two. You know, so he's way bigger than it than he seems. And, and that's he was, like, you know, that's Kevin Williams size. That's, you know, not shy of being Chris Jones. That's a big guy. That That is a load inside. But he looks like this slim, undersized player. And I honestly think, I mean, it's it's kind of in there as a joke, but I honestly think a def, an interior defensive lineman wearing a single digit number, and in particular, <laughs> number one, I, I honestly think that makes him look smaller makes guys think that that guy is massively undersized and he really isn't like he is a big guy now i still think his role is as a pure 
penetrating pass rusher. I think shooting gaps, like he shouldn't be doing anything other than shooting gaps. That's what he is really good at. His get off is absolutely ridiculous. There's a bunch of plays where, you know, your favorite play where they try and um, re- down block Aaron Donald with the center and you just never can't ever get there. Yeah. Um, Jordan Elliott was wrecking that block, except it wasn't a center. Like he was just beating a down block to the gap. Like they weren't able to just get across a shade and block Jordan Elliott when he when he really shoots that gap. That's what he should be doing. I, I think he's got skills like to do other things. He he shows some plays where he's got really good hands, um, but a lot of the time when he's not shooting a gap, it's like he doesn't really have a plan for what he's doing. You know, he's, he sort of just reacts and tries to shed every now and again. But when he doesn't have the plan, he can kind of get stuck on the block, I think, largely while trying to decide what he should be doing. You're talking Whereas about the run just, eh, A bit of both, whether it's a run or whether it's disengaging and figuring out wh- how he's going to rush the passer. Whereas when he's just shooting a gap, there's no thinking, right? It's just in, I can shed this guy, I can get skinny, I can, you know, do a, I, I can get past him without any problem if I don't have to think about what I'm actually doing. That, that concept of getting skinny is is one of the notes I made. You know, a lot of these defensive tackles, when you're going through their tape over and over and over again, there's not too many of them that actually handle double teams really well. Like even Derek Brown, even the guys that are the great run defenders, like they will get moved by double teams every now and again. But I thought that Jordan Elliott had this really impressive running back style ability to get skinny and split double teams. Now, if he didn't do that, he would get destroyed. Um, which again is kind of standard, right? Like when you're going through and you make the same note on every, I can't handle, it doesn't hand up, handle double teams, doesn't stand up. Like it's pretty common from like a, what you see standpoint. But um, Elliot has an ability to, to kind of split the double as far as um, um, the run game goes and playing with that good pad level. He knows how to long arm. I think he does have a number of rushes where he kind of adjusts his hands on the fly to, mm-hmm. uh, to win late. And, you know, so I think he has the ability to win right off the snap and win late better than most in this class. So the number I point to is he's right up there with Javon Kinlaw in win percentage over the last two years from a pass rushing standpoint. Last year, he had the number one pass rush grade and number four run defense grade. He's the only guy to rank in the top five in both departments. So we might be underrating Jordan Elliott based off all of these numbers. But either way, I think the NFL is absolutely underrating him. And we definitely put him in the first round conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think he was, what, the highest graded pass rusher from an interior player last year? He was, um, yeah. And I honestly think there's room for him to be a lot better. Like, like I say, there's some plays where I don't think he really has a plan and sometimes figures it out and gets pressure at the end. But there's a lot of times where I think if he's if he's coached to be more decisive and to basically have a specific role on every one of these plays, I think you get more pass rush pressure out of him. And then I think a lot of his deficiencies in the run game I think are coachable as well. Like he bounces out of his gap a lot, a lot more than I was comfortable with. But again, that feels like something that shouldn't be a problem to fix, right? It's like, this is your gap. Don't leave it. The end. Right. So um, just to wrap things up with Elliot, he's also a guy, one of my favorite things to do every off season is to see guys that played really well on really small sample sizes and kind of say, Hey, you know, here's a guy to watch for next year. He was that classic guy to watch. He only had 395 snaps in 2018 had an 86.86 uh, 86.6 grade, which was which is outstanding for that small sample. Uh, last year, 565 snaps, grade was up to 92.4. So he was kind of like on the breakout player list for us this year. Uh, I, part of the concern, though, is you add that up. He's under a thousand snaps over the last 
three right. seasons, right? So he, the experience isn't there, to your point, um, which I think maybe makes him a little bit more attractive, potentially. So um, nothing physically is special about him. Had a good 10-yard split, 1.71. Uh, beyond that, pedestrian workout numbers. So I think those are parts of the, you know, part of the reasons, I think, maybe why um, he's not in that first-round mix compared to some of the others. But I do think that that for that get off that first step is potentially special though i think he could wreck people really early in the play you know the way you ever remember, you remember fred evans minnesota vikings defensive yeah. tackle uh, that was all he had right he had maybe the most absurd first step i've ever seen anybody have and then wasn't very good at every at anything after that but that first step consistently showed up you could watch him um and i, I think so elliot flashes this but i think there's too many plays where he's not shooting a gap right if you just line him up and said shoot this gap every single time he will be in the backfield constantly like evans used to be able to freeze frame just after the snap and he would be like a foot into the neutral zone everyone else hadn't moved yet dominic easley my easley guy (laughs) all right let's move on to another guy that we have a first round grade on it's curtis weaver from boise state Uh, by the way i think elliot ends up becoming a steal on day two for somebody Mm-hmm. Curtis Weaver could potentially be a steal on day two. This is one of those guys. I, I don't know how you felt watching him. He's one of the guys I struggle with because it's two years of really good grading. It came at Boise State, so that's the one caveat maybe from a competition standpoint. He's got the number one win percentage from a pass rushing standpoint over the last couple of years. But he's kind of um, – I kind of want to read Austin's note okay. because, when you know, Austin Gale just – he's – our interviewer extraordinaire. And he talked to Curtis and he said, the NFL thinks he's fat. Essentially. Mm. Curtis knows that the NFL thinks he's fat, fat boy, bad build. NFL hates his build. He even hates his build, but he's on a strict diet preparing for the combine. This was, you know, pre combine. And he's a part of Exos's club sexy to help cut weight with other players that need to cut. So uh, Hmm. Weaver understands his limitations apparently austin was out there fat shaming him um these are internal notes that probably aren't supposed to go public <laughs> That's i don't unfortunate. know I, I didn't listen to the interview with weaver i'm about to do that choking thing so i'm gonna go on mute tell me about weaver oh cool um i found curtis weaver maybe the hardest evaluation of anybody on this list <laughs> because you know the the data is absurd. Like his win rate is nuts. His production is crazy. His grade is outstanding. Um, when you turn on the tape, it's kind of hard to figure out why. He's got really good hands. I think that's the one thing that does show up is that every single play you see him defeating a guy with his hands. Anytime he hits a, a blocker's hands, those, those hands are not on him. So that part is really good. Almost anything else, it's hard to look. And anything else looks average. He... You know, he has the body type that we've just talked about, not tremendously NFL flattering. Um, He doesn't look particularly fast, explosive. He looks reasonably fluid, but it doesn't look athletic. It's I just it's difficult to figure out like what the selling point is. Um, I did come away, though, with a bit of a theory in that I don't think that Boise State scheme made him look good. Right. They had him as a stand up edge rushers this two-point stance you know the awkward kind of uh awkward two-point uh alignment where you have to then sort of roll your way into an explosive pass rush which is just i i think it's hard to do um he reminded me a lot of 
You remember Aaron Campman from Green Bay, right? He yeah. was this really good, really overachieving 4-3 defensive end. And then they made him stand up and pivot to a 3-4 outside linebacker. And overnight, he turned to crap. He was just awful because he needed this. So we talk a lot of the times about how the, the kind of difference between the two is it's kind of disappeared, right? There is, from an alignment point of view... The 3-4 versus the 4-3 guy is in exactly the same spot in, in terms of D-line techniques. He's exactly where he would be. The only difference is one guy's got his hand in the dirt and the other guy is in a two-point stance. But there are guys for whom that two- to three-point stance thing makes all the difference. Campman was one. And the other guy, which is more topical now, is Robert Quinn. I think Robert Quinn yeah. is exactly the same thing. He needs his hand in the ground to get that kind of that coil pre-snap to be able to spring and leap and burst to, into his pass rush. Those guys that win with speed and explosion need that. Weaver, I think, actually has some twitchiness, some explosion to him, but he never had a chance to use it because he was never in a three-point stance. And I was asking you this yesterday. I figured out how to filter to it. Would you like to know how many snaps he had in anything other than a two-point stance. Yes, I would. I'm Last in. year, zero. Not a single snap. Seriously? Yep. In his NFL or in his college career, 39. All hey, of them, that can't be all right. of them were yeah. in this four-point sumo stance thing, not a three-point stance. I don't think he had a single snap in a, th- in a legitimate three-point stance. I think every single uh, stance that was hand in the ground was this weird sumo four-point stance thing where, I mean, that's not going to help you do the explosion stuff. So my theory that he's more explosive than he looks on tape is going to be entirely untested until we see him actually do that at the next level. Um, Or you get a 10-yard split out of him, you know, doing some of these pre-draft workouts, which I haven't seen anywhere. So that's great. I think that's a great note. Thank you, PFF Ultimate. And I'm making a note to add stance to my uh, defensive... Uh, to PFF IQ for defensive players there so you that go. you can easily get to it because um, <clears throat> I love that whole thought process, right? Like I'm seeing this thing and let me pay, let me just um, let me try to confirm it. And you're able to confirm the fact they didn't have many opportunities. I, I think to paint a picture for our listeners too, from a body type standpoint, he reminds me of Lamar Woodley of the Steelers. Remember Woodley played that three, four outside backer kind of like a, uh, heavy set defensive end body trying to play three, four outside backer. And then Lamar Houston from the Raiders. Houston, came out of, Yeah. And he was like a defensive tackle in college mm-hmm. who kicked outside some more of that three, four outside backer. And then I really like Renner's comp for him, which is Jabal Sheard. And I do think, you know, Sheard wasn't the greatest athlete in the world, but he won uh, fairly often throughout his career. And when I watched Weaver, you mentioned his good hands. I thought he just kind of, out technical college offensive tackles. He was just more technically sound. His hands were better than their hands, and he won quite a bit. Swipes and, and various things that he, he was pretty good at. Can I give you one more comp that, yeah. I, that struck me? Um, Charles Johnson, the old Carolina Panthers defensive end. Again, had that sort of body type that makes you think, how's that guy good? Um, just won a lot. Right. And a lot of the same ways, right? If you're going to have that kind of body and not be that staggeringly explosive, you win by technique and you win by being sound. Now, Charles Johnson had more of the sort of edge bursts and, and uh, corner turning ability than I've seen from Weaver. But I think that would be like his ceiling. 
Like if you get, I think Weaver should be basically trying to become Charles Johnson. That should be his NFL target. So um, the one last thing about Weaver too, not only did he beat up on college offensive tackles, it was a lot of college right tackles. He had an outstanding game against uh, Florida State to kick off the year this year, and he played a little hurt down the stretch. So Weaver is a guy in this very questionable group, you know, class of edge defenders. I think teams should be making, they'll be making decisions on like Curtis Weaver, who's everybody, everything that we just described versus say Julian Okwara from Notre Dame, who is bursty and bendy and, you know, the prototype from, uh, you know, draw up an edge defender, especially at the old school three, four outside linebacker. It's Okwara. I think teams are going to start debating this production versus, um, you know, day one tools, so to speak, with Aquara. Well, what's interesting is I don't think so. You're right. That's probably where that's probably the closest um, comp in terms of um, in terms of where they're going to go actually on in the draft. But for us, it's a more interesting conversation of do you get a Curtis Weaver or a Caleb on chase on who Ooh, is all yeah. kinds of like burst and, and everything that you should want in an edge rusher, but has none of the production. So it's two extremes, right? The guy that has all the production doesn't appear to have any of the athletic tools you're looking for versus the guy that has all of that and none of the other stuff. Like which one should you be shooting for if you're the NFL? Uh, let me just say this. As much as we say Caleb on Chason's numbers are not first round worthy, I don't feel as strong about him as I do did Rashawn Gary, Rashawn Gary last sure. year, right? We we talk about the, I think we mentioned this on the other podcast. Like Rashawn Gary, I felt really strongly that I just wouldn't touch him until day two. I could be convinced to take Chase on like late first round, right? If I was in need of an edge rusher, because and it's not even just the high end plays. Like I could see him being that guy developing, and um, I, I think stylistically, there's. So if you're like a freaky tweener between an end and a, an interior guy, I think it's harder to project no production than it is if you're a freaky edge rusher. Yeah, for right. some reason, I think that's an easier sell. If you're going to tell me that you have a freak athlete, one of them is like a 265-pound speed edge rusher, and the other one is like a 285-pound you know, tweener tackle end thing. Who's never really been productive. I would have a far easier time projecting the edge guy to have success, even though neither of them have had it than the guy who's stuck in the middle somewhere. All right, let's get into our, our next guy. Do you want, are we talking about Bravey and Roy? Are we going by your yeah, list? We here? are. Well, we don't have to do it in order, but we have to talk about him. All right, we'll get to him at the end. Josh Uche from, uh, from Michigan. There's another edge defender, a guy that, um, was extremely productive. Again, uh, number one win percentage just last year among all edges. And I don't think he tested, right? I think we really wanted to see him test. He went to the Senior Bowl and uh, has some pop in his hands. He's explosive. And he's in that second tier, I think, of edge rushers where you could get a, a pretty productive player on day two. I love Josh Uchi, but I have no idea what to do with him at the next level. None. I don't know where he fits um, because he's a massively undersized guy for an edge rusher. Like, I know there have been undersized edge rushers that have been successful, but even, like, Michigan didn't use him like that exclusively. Michigan, they didn't use him quite the same way as the Patriots have used Dante Hightower, but I think it was a lot of the same idea, right, which is you sort of take him off the ball, you line him up as a, an off-the-ball linebacker, you 
add him, you use him as a blitzer, or even if you're not using him as a blitzer, you walk him down onto the, you know, onto the line and you have him shoot the B gap and all those kinds of things. So it's, it's not quite the high tower thing, but it's a lot of the same principles, I think, which is you sort of shift the dynamics of how you're asking, um, offenses to, to pick up and deal with this guy. It, it's not the same as saying, all right, if you line up in this position every single time, it's one thing, but if you, sometimes you're here, sometimes you're over here, it's, it's difficult for blocking schemes to, to deal with that. So I think a lot of his production, I don't want to say it's, it's like entirely dependent on the scheme, but it was helped, right? It was, he was certainly benefited from the fact that Michigan was prepared to use him um, all over the line. I don't know if you can put him as just say, all right, now he's a 3-4 outside linebacker, standard 3-4 outside linebacker. I think he could do that and be reasonably successful at it, but it kind of feels like a waste. It's like the he struck me as like an Isaiah Simmons for the front seven, right? Yeah. Instead of a guy that can do everything in the back and cover anywhere you want him to and be that matchup weapon, what if you have a guy in the front seven who can do that, right? You don't know where he's going to be on any given snap. He can be as a 3-4 outside linebacker. He can be in the middle somewhere as an off-the-ball linebacker. He can be down you know, almost as a defensive tackle, stuck as a, a stand-up guy in the B-gap and be right. rushing against your guard. You don't know where he's going to be, but he gives you the flexibility to start doing basically anything you want up front. I don't know that there are defensive coordinators uh, creative enough to do that as opposed to just say, all right, you're going to become a 3-4 outside linebacker or a situational rusher. But I would love to see it because I think that's what he would be really good at. He's good at pretty much everything you want him to do. Um, it's obviously it's raw and it's not, it's not the, the finished product yet, but I think he would be spectacular if someone gave him a role like that. Yeah, we have this conversation every year, right? Because we've got the data on every single player in college, and inevitably there are going to be guys like him who are undersized and produce really well at the college level. And then the question is, okay, can he be an edge rusher at the next level? Do I have to transition him to linebacker? Can he transition to linebacker? Or can we? Or is somebody willing to create this role that you just said, right? In this perfect world, I think that role exists. But the same thing I said on the last podcast is there are 64 pass rushing jobs in the NFL. Right? right, there's two per team. You got to be one of the top 64 pass rushers in the world, right? And a lot of these undersized guys, like a Josh Uche, like jo- Joe Schobert coming out, um, Sha- uh, Shaquille Griffin coming out, right? Shaquem, Shaquem, Shaquem Griffin. Sorry, um, there's a lot of these guys every sing- single year. It's like, do they fit into this top 64, so to speak? Do I actually want to make him my edge defender over, say, like a Chandler Jones type or whoever, like the prototype? But if I have those two guys, if I have my two edge defenders, how can I use this skill set to isolate this guy on running backs or make, you know, if they're quicker than guards, like you said, roll them up into the B gap. Um, Zach Bond from Wisconsin, by the way, same question mark, edge rusher slash, but Bond looks like a, probably a cleaner linebacker transition at the next level. Well, there's, I think there's two questions there, right? There's, if I'm going to turn him into just this one role, is he good enough to do that full time and be, you know, one of the top players that, so there's, there's all these, there's a lot of college guys that do not fit cleanly into an NFL position. And you go, well, for this guy to be at his best, you want him as a mix of this and this and this, right? And it's on both sides of the ball, whether it's offense or defense. The problem with that is, so you can do that for pretty much anybody, but you can probably only do it to one guy 
in a defense or one guy in an offense. And that guy needs to be special enough when you do that to make it worth your while. Right. So the idea is Isaiah Simmons is potentially an all world talent if you craft this defense and let him do what he does best, like Clemson did. So it's worth essentially designing a defense around that guy because in that role where everything is built around him, he becomes phenomenal. And the same is true for like offenses, right? If you get a guy who's like a Percy Harvin, maybe was special enough that you could craft an offense around him and, and everything else is okay, right? Everyone else is will move to accommodate what you want to do for that guy or a Christian McCaffrey for Carolina. Maybe they're special enough that you can build an offense around him or Cam Newton if you want to take it to quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson, right? He is so special within that system that it's worth building the entire thing around him. But if you have a guy who, well, okay, we could build the entire thing around him just to make him viable, then it's probably not worth doing, right? Then you're probably better off just not taking that player, taking somebody else and plugging him into an offense that's easier for everybody else. That's the question you have to ask yourself is, is Josh Uche good enough that if we create this system that lets him be this sort of joker up front, everything, A, it's a net win for everybody else, and B, like he's special enough that that makes everything else better. I think there's a chance he is, but that's a big risk for any team to do that. And they would have to be sure that if you, you know, if you craft this entire thing around him, he becomes not just good, not just worth doing, but like special. Unless he just becomes a part of positionless football. And yeah, you build your entire team with a bunch of these guys. Yeah. And I think there's maybe one team in the NFL that's even close to that right now. Everyone else is far closer to we have this system and you plug into any one of these positions. Take your favorite. So the guy that uh, Renner used as a comp, another one, I, I don't always agree with, with Mike and his comps. I, I think this one's clean, though. Uchenna and Wosu, the guy that came out of USC two years ago, went in the second round, has played for the Chargers. The Chargers were thinking, I, I think we thought that they might completely transition him to linebacker. They haven't really. He's been mostly a pass rusher. He's only dropped into coverage 57 times um, with the Chargers in the NFL, and he's been a mediocre pass rusher so far. But he had the same questions. It was like, pretty productive college career. Not not as productive as Uche, though. Um, and kind of played more undersized than Uche, mm-hmm. despite being 6'2", 251. So I think it's a similar type of guy. And, and Wosu adds... Again, he's dropped into coverage 57 times over two years. But you're talking like a couple times a game here and there. Like that does bring a little bit of versatility to a defense. But that's like a day two type of, uh, right. you know, added value. And that's where I think, you know, Uche can can be pretty solid. I think there's some Gennard Avery to him as well. Yeah. You know, Gennard Avery had that thing where he basically split time between edge rusher and, and true off the ball linebacker. Not the way that Uche did and that it wasn't like snap to snap. It was this game you're playing linebacker, this game you're playing edge rusher. Uh, Avery, I always felt, was just a better edge rusher. It, it felt like they took their edge rusher and plugged him in at linebacker and he was good enough to make it work in college. But I don't know that it was, I don't know that that's possible at the NFL level. He basically became an edge rusher for the Browns. But th- there's some of that to him. I think he could probably be a decent edge rusher, but I would love to see him land somewhere like the Ravens or somewhere like the Patriots, a team that's willing to take a guy and tailor things to what he does well, because I think he does a lot of things well. All right. Next guy to talk about here is Willie Gay from Mississippi State. The linebacker class, this is kind of the usual 
the usual deal every year, right? The linebacker linebackers are tough to to rank. Um, I think anybody in the back seven is tough to rank because it's going to be stylage and usage and all style and usage and whatever. If you have Isaiah Simmons as a linebacker, most people have him as number one. I think there's an internal debate in NFL war rooms about Patrick Queen versus Kenneth Murray as late first round picks. We have Patrick Queen as our number two linebacker, but we have Willie Gay as our number three linebacker, and we don't have Murray until number five. So we're definitely higher on Willie Gay than others. There's some off-field concerns, but on the field, explosive sideline-to-sideline player. Yeah, like so he, to me, is like if you were asking teams to draw up an NFL linebacker for today, you would basically draw up. Willie Gay, like he does everything from a size, speed, instincts, play, everything that you would want that just comes with a ton of baggage, right? Whether it's low sample size, whether it's off field issues, like you just have to navigate that because I think on the field, it's difficult to look at his tape and find problems, right? He does everything you want well. He shows you at least a few plays of every single thing you're looking for. He excels in coverage, which is the hardest and most coveted thing for a linebacker in today's NFL. It's just we haven't seen a enough of it, and b, you know, there's also the suspension issues. So he's uh, he's graded extremely well in coverage when he's been on the field. Improved a little bit in the run game. It wasn't really, um, it's not really his calling card, but he has the skills there. But it's one of those at the linebacker position. If you're willing to give up a little bit of production for uh, an incredible athlete, like that would be the position to do it. And he ran a 4-4-6, 40, a 1-5, 10-yard split. Both of those are 99th percentile at the position. Uh, solid 20-yard shuttle, solid three-cone, almost a 40-inch vertical, 99th percentile broad. I mean, he just tore up the combine. So if you're going to – this is one of those positions, if you're going to bet on an athlete who's not a disaster on the field, he's been a solid player – uh, you know, this would this is the guy. I mean, this is the guy to do right. it. The only question is, you know, some of the the off field stuff, which um, basically people at Mississippi State said um, it was a bad year. We can't elaborate beyond that. So hmm. we'll leave it. At that. So he feels like the kind of gamble it's worth taking, right? Particularly if you're a team that has, if you've assembled draft capital, like this is why you do that. You know, you do it to move around, or you do it so that you have the ability to take a flyer on a guy other people don't want to risk. So, you know, if you're a team with multiple second-round picks, say, I would absolutely spend one of them on a guy like Willie Gay. If it doesn't pan out, fine, we have the other one there. But we took a shot at upside that other people didn't want to risk because they only had the one swing at the bat. I think that is an absolutely perfect way to spend that kind of extra draft pick. He has only played 846 snaps. In his career, yeah. I mean, he was only on the field 177 snaps last year. So that's over three years, 846 snaps has been outstanding in coverage. You mentioned that, you know, if you have multiple second round picks, like I think a team like the Rams, where they pick toward the back end of the second round, have uh, the two second rounders just lost Corey Littleton. I mean, this guy could immediately replace Corey Littleton in the middle of the field, assuming you can keep him on the field. So um, from an on field standpoint, the guy can play three picks, three pass breakups on just 34, 35 targets. His right. first game, he just rolls back in against Kentucky, pick six uh, mm-hmm. right off the bat. So, yeah, he's got he's, – he's a skilled player. Yeah. So, Willie Gay, another guy. I think we're going to be higher on him than most uh, because we have him as our linebacker three. And, you know, 
how much can we really factor in the off-field your, stuff? I'm not in the interviews. Who am I missing? Patrick Queen, two. Who's one? Isaiah Simmons. And so I'm looking at my... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It you. depends on where you put him. Right. Um, Gay's number three if Simmons is a linebacker. Honestly, he's in different places, depending right. on uh, on where we are. I got you. All right. After Willie Gay, let's go, let's go Tyler Johnson, wide receiver out of Minnesota. <laughs> what do you think? So, I feel like... Tyler Johnson tape should come with a Johnny Cash soundtrack, right? Yeah. You know that that um, I hurt myself today to see if I still feel that kind of thing, right? Because yeah, so it, it's like you were talking about this with Tyler Boyd, right? He was the guy who, no matter how much tape you watched, you just couldn't feel anything. Yeah. That's where I am with Tyler Johnson. I keep watching, keep watching, and keep wanting to have a take or an opinion or just feel, you know, the blood coursing through my veins and make sure I'm still alive and functioning. And I don't, I just, I can't, nothing about anything he does feels like anything. It's just, he's okay at everything. Right. And he doesn't seem spectacular at anything and he doesn't seem bad at anything. And yet somehow his grade is phenomenal. He keeps racking up the plays. I just, I don't know. I work. Can you, have you any kind of take on Tyler Johnson? No, I don't. I've got the Tyler Boyd thing right. you do. And it, so what I don't, like Renner's top couple notes in the pros section of the, uh, of the draft guide calls him one of the most refined route runners in college football, which I get. Like, I, I see the route running. I see his ability to uh, just create separation, right, and to, um, to maneuver cornerbacks where he wants to move, maneuver them. But the next one I don't see as much because it says his shiftiness is off the charts and it shows up at the line of scrimmage and his route right. breaks. I feel like he's a little bit more just like, this is the Tyler Boyd thing. I'm like, Tyler Boyd, you just created great separation on one of my favorite routes, the old post out. And, yeah. you know, Johnson can do that. But it's not like he's doing that and you're like, man, look at this. Look at those breaks. Like you're Keenan Allen or you're uh, Devontae Adams who Renner comped him to. So this would be one of those places – where I don't see special, I just see it working so far. Right. I really don't see Devontae Adams kind of quicks or skills or feet or any of those kinds of things. Um, and I, he also, a lot of the sort of separation stuff, it's it's kind of schemed routes, right? It's like you're you're working from the slot or you're, um, you're exploiting holes in zones and all those kinds of things. And it's the one thing I, I am starting to come to the conclusion of though is that i think that this whole concept we're talking about about the i just can't feel anything about this guy i think that's actually a good sign right i I think this this concept of i can't find anything to to complain about or i can't find like i think a lot of guys you're sort of they're all over the map and you latch on to the stuff that's really impressive right i think this mental highlight reel thing that we've talked about for years that you, you tend to f- zoom in on the things that are amazing and start trying to project what could happen because of all these traits. But really the key to the key to playing at a high level in the NFL is all the stuff in the middle, the stuff that your brain just does not want to retain because it's, it's I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's the white noise in, in the background. But that's what defines whether you can play or not. And if all you have is that, it means you can probably play. And Tyler Boyd is probably a pretty good comp for him because he didn't he wasn't bad at anything he was good at pretty much everything but not good enough that you were blown away or that you wanted to lean on it as a reason that he should be drafted really highly 
But Tyler Johnson is the same thing in that he's good at everything, just not so good that you want to you, you, you know, pound the table for him and say draft him high because he's spectacular at all these things. So I think the fact that you get this overwhelming sense of you know death within your own body is actually a positive thing for his prospects. I think he's probably going to be a good player because they can't find a single thing to hate about him. I could see a Tyler Boyd type of career, too. I mean, Boyd... That's what I'm saying. Boyd came out just solid the first couple of years. I mean, even last year, when you look at Tyler Boyd's numbers, 90 catches for 1,046 yards, that's more of like... It was 11.6 yards per reception. It's not like that's domination. That's kind of like, hey, you're the high-volume target in this offense that doesn't have A.J. Green anymore and can't really rely on John Ross. Like, So you're the high-volume target. But when you look at his season with A.J. Green... In 2018, mostly, well, a lot of A.J. Green. And then Green gets hurt and he has to kind of take over. Like, that was, you know, he's got this peak season in 2018 where he was really, really good over 1,000 yards and, you know, 13 and a half per catch and seven touchdowns and all that stuff. Like, I could see that for Tyler Johnson. The mm-hmm. other point I want to make, too, his numbers are so good for us. Like, he's graded really well. He's graded really well against single coverage, which is huge. Like, hey, when you're one-on-one, you're winning. And here's what I think about when you're evaluating by production – rather than, like, identifying traits. If, if it's just a binary, did you win or did you lose, and here's 500 reps, and over time you won way more than everyone else, it almost doesn't matter how you did it to a point. It's just kind of right. like it's rolled up into it, right? So whether, you, whether we say you're shifty, whether we say you use your hands well, whether we say you could do these 10 things well, it almost doesn't matter because it just kind of gets rolled in there. And if you find a way to get open, you found a way to get open. And that's kind of what I feel about Tyler Johnson. Well, yeah, it's like I can't find a particularly good reason that he's winning over and over and over again. But equally, I can't find a reason that it won't still continue. So there's nothing in his tape that makes you go, well, okay, everything he's doing is a product of this. And as soon as you put him in the NFL, that disappears and it's not going to happen anymore. So it's again, it's just it's. It doesn't come down on either side of this thing. It's I think you just have to say, all right, he's not he's not special, but I think he's almost certainly going to be you know a viable, productive um, member of a receiving depth chart in the NFL. By the way, it's everybody just, it makes me feel a little bit dead inside. <laughs> everybody that we've uh, discussed so far is is in the PFF top one hundred. Uh, the only two guys with first round or you know, top thirty two uh, that are on the top thirty two on the draft board are Jordan Elliott and Curtis Weaver. I'm um, sticking with that theme. Zach Moss from Utah. We got to talk about a running back. They made us watch running backs. Um, if you're going to look at a running back, find a running back that does really well outside of the blocking or in space as a receiver. And Zach Moss seems to have ticked all of those boxes. What are your thoughts on Moss and what you saw from him? I I kind of wish that the analytics and all the data hasn't you know ruined running backs for us because. Like Zach Moss is a great player and he's really fun to watch. And I think he's good at everything. Um, He's got great balance. He's got this change of pace that I think is really important. The ability to sort of cruise and then suddenly bursts in a couple of steps. Um, You know, the the acceleration through a gap, I think is special. He's got the ability to cut well. Um, He's got a little bit of the Le'Veon Bell trait that not many running backs have, which is this understanding of leverage and how to, 
how to leverage leverage and actually break back into space that you create personally rather than the blocking, right? Right. So Le'Veon Bell, you know, would always do this thing where he'd get to the line and then essentially fake like he was heading in one gap so that his guy would bounce back into the, or, you know, cheat towards that gap. And then he cut back into the space that he just opened up by making the guy do that. Moss does that as well. You see it sometimes where he's moving and will sort of threaten a different gap and then quickly cut back into the space that he generated by causing the defense to anticipate where he was going. That's, I think, a pretty rare thing. I don't think too many running backs do that. Um, He's got like a little bit of a tendency to try and bounce things outside too much, but I honestly think that's just a college-wide problem. I think running backs always do that in college because it almost sort of, you're almost incentivized to do that by the fact that you know the wide hash marks where you can be working with a ton of space outside and also you know college athletes a lot of the time aren't very good so there's a lot of time it pays off for you bouncing it outside because you suddenly find yourself one-on-one with 20 yards of space against a guy who isn't your caliber of athlete you know that doesn't work at the nfl level but i think you can adjust to that so if you're going to evaluate a running back which you still have to do because there are levels of good when it comes to Mm -hmm. running back uh, you want to focus on, again, the things that they can do above and beyond their control, their, uh, above and beyond, or things that they can control, above and beyond the offensive line, and what can they do as a receiver. I'm going to be writing a piece uh, this week, actually, that talks about PFF critical factors, Sam, and the stable metrics and the unstable metrics when you're evaluating these guys. And so the stable metrics are the ones that you would want to focus on for a running back would be things like his rushing grade his missed tackles per attempt, his yards after contact per attempt, his overall receiving grade, same thing, forcing missed tackles after the catch and then yards per route run. Those are six metrics where Zach Moss is the only running back in this class to rank in the top six in all of them. And he was number one in yards per route run. So um, it's blue across the board on my spreadsheet as far as is he in the top percentile on all these things that are the most important things for a running back. He's there. And um, Renner's comp was Kareem Hunt, which I like a lot because you talk about the balance, ability to make guys miss, and probably lacking that top-end speed for whatever that's worth. Um, I think that sums up Zach Moss really well. Yeah, like I say, I, I'm kind of sad that we, we're just conditioned into this running backs don't matter thing and you know don't pay attention yeah. to them and don't draft anybody before the fifth round and all that kind of stuff because I think Moss is a really good running back. And you know, if we were doing this back in 2014, say – he'd probably be a first round guy for us because that's where we were putting the top running back. The guy that we thought was the special guy from this group. I think he's absolutely in the discussion to be the best running back taken in this draft. Your only question is how high do you take that guy in, in a vacuum? I would say also from a, even though his past game numbers are really good, he's the type of guy I think is just going to maximize a swing pass, a check down. He's not going to be, he's not the one you're going to be isolating on a linebacker. He's not going to run a ton of, uh, routes from the slot or out wide. He's okay at all of that stuff, but kind of like Christian McCaffrey did in a few games last year, Christian McCaffrey would just take a check down and instead of only getting three, he got seven, eight, nine, ten. Feels like that's more of Moss's game when it comes to being a receiver. Yeah, he was more the the David Montgomery as opposed to the Josh Jacobs. I, I think Josh Jacobs had like receiver skills that he could be lined up outside and run deep down the field. I think Montgomery was good as a receiver out of the backfield. Right. Like Moss, I think, can be a good receiver out of the backfield. He's not going to be a matchup problem if you put him in the slaughter out wide. Zach Moss, hashtag fun to watch. Uh, how about Geno Stone, the safety out of Iowa? 
I think, I, I, again, I don't know where the NFL is on him. We definitely have him ranked higher. I don't love him as much as I'll be, I, I, I would re-rank some of our safeties at PFF. There's a, there's a guy that we're going to talk about later that I like a little bit better than Geno Stone, but uh, he's an underrated, just solid Iowa player. How many Iowa players, <laughs> when you're writing notes, you're just like, this guy understands zone coverage. I mean, that's just, that's Iowa, right? To a T, that's Geno Stone. Yeah, I mean, I really liked, he would shoot out of the, of the middle of the field like a guided missile, you know? He, as soon as he sees something and he sees it early, he just fires towards the ball in a straight line really fast. And it's Sometimes kind of fun when to watch. he shouldn't. Sometimes when he's eh. not supposed to as well. Look, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get some wrong sometimes. And honestly, <laughs> there's not much you can do about that. Like, it, part of, honestly, I think part, like, Earl Thomas gambles a ton and gets a lot wrong, right? But he's so good at the stuff he gets right that it's a net win. I think you probably have to eat that sometimes. Part of, like, part of this idea of being able to see things happen before other people is sometimes circumstances change, right? And uh, you might have seen exactly what the quarterback saw, and then the quarterback decided against it, and now you're in trouble because you were anticipating what the quarterback was doing, which he was going to do, and then changed his mind. And at the point where he changed his mind, you're now you're now screwed. There's no way of like backtracking from that. You've already set off and you're, you're committed. Um, but I think that's probably okay. I think that's probably a net win unless it becomes a trait that defenses figure out how, or the offenses figure out how to exploit. Like if you're so quick to do it that they can just go, well, I'm just going to look that guy off and he's gone. He's out of the middle of the field. That's a problem. But I think if you're just good enough that occasionally the quarterback has to, um, back out of what he wants to do, and then you're, you know, you're in trouble. I'm okay with that. I think that's worth the sacrifice for the plays he does make. I think the key with Gino is he works downhill a lot better than he works moving backwards. So he's got to be in a system like they play a lot of quarters there, and with quarters, it's like there's a lot of stuff underneath you that you have to read. So like the plays you're describing, if you're reading a player and he's not running a vertical route at you. You're pretty much working downhill, finding work or attacking a drag route or whatever it is. He does that really well. He attacks downhill very, very well. I've seen him lose track lose track of the ball in the air in one-on-one situations, though. I, I think it's more like when he has to go backwards. So I think if he's in a zone-heavy scheme, he's got some beautiful plays, too. Just getting depth and picking passes off against Michigan. Like There's a lot of great plays on film. I think he'll be a little scheme-specific, but in the right scheme, zone-heavy scheme where he is working downhill more than he's got to work backwards, I think I think he's a solid player. And um, I think we'll be higher than him. Do you have the draft board? I think he's a top six safety for us right now. Uh, yeah. Well, Either with or without was, Isaiah Simmons. One, if you have Isaiah Simmons, he's three, four, five, six, seven. If you don't, he's six. Okay, great. Yeah, so he's a solid player. Now, the guy that he's just ahead of on our draft board, I would actually flip them. It's Terrell Burgess from... From Utah, he, after watching him, he's become one of my favorite players in the entire draft. Did you have any Terrell Burgess takes in general, or I was going to leave them to you because I know you got a lot to, lot so to just wax like, lyrical about it there. So just let me take over. Yeah, let's um, go. He is when we talk about versatility, he is the guy that I think can legitimately cover the slot and legitimately play safety. He had the number two coverage grade in the slot last year, number four coverage grade on plays just in the box. And he's he's a, he's a good athlete. He, I don't think he screams great athlete on film, but he's just the, the two words that came to mind were control and patience. 
and you know you used to play defensive back, Sam. I don't know how how difficult is it, right? We we see these super athletic defensive backs all the time, and they have no patience in press coverage, or they have no patience at the catch point. And all I see is Burgess not get not overcommitting to routes, and when he's at the catch point, he is just fantastic at. Um, you know, it, it, there's an underthrow and not running into the defender and not, you know, just essentially not interfering, but breaking up the pass. And I'm watching him play after play. And I'm like, man, he's so good at that. I wonder how many penalties he's had during his career. Do you know how many penalties he had? Zero. Wow. Zero penalties in his career. That's and, insane. Right. And, and, and he's, and he was targeted quite a bit. So, um, I, I've just, I was just so impressed with Terrell Burgess from Utah. I would, I would sprint to the podium to grab him on day two and use him all over the place in my defense. Cool. So the patience thing, right? Like that's gotta be tough for you guys. You, uh, you former defensive backs. Yeah. Well, so the reacting to the ball at the catch point is hard because a lot of those times you're not, you're not looking for the ball, right? Because you need to figure out where the receiver is at the same time. And then, time you know there's so many of those pass interference penalties where it's because the ball is off target and the receiver's trying to adjust to it and the defender can't adjust to it because he's trying to track the receiver who suddenly shifts and you just run clean into him and it's pass interference like that catch point dance of trying to stay close to the receiver and challenge for the ball that you don't know where it's actually coming is a really hard thing to do and anyone that can do that to a high level has got some skills all right, we got a few more guys. Uh, again, we're just going through the guys we're higher on than most. Uh, Jack Driscoll from Auburn is a guy who just shows up from a pass protection standpoint um, pretty well for us. I, I'll put Jack Driscoll and I'll put Matt Peart from UConn in the same bucket. I think it, I'm going to write an article on this too, like kind of like stealing value in the draft. If you can find that. I'll use the same thing I said for edge rushers. There's 64 starting tackles in the world. Like 15 of them are good, right? So if you could somehow find a decent one, it's an absolute steal. And I am a big fan of taking those chances round three, round four. And I think of Jack Driscoll from Auburn, Matt Peart from UConn, who have good pass protecting profiles. Peart was really good in the run game. He's only played football. He only started playing football in high school. Um, those are the types of guys I would say you just you take shots on. Steel Did you value. ever check how to pronounce his name? Because that feels like one that you could have been screwing up all the way along. Somebody In told fact, me it feels it was like Peart. one you would have been screwing up. I along. would have said Peart. So that's how he says it. Oh, good. Somebody told me it was Peart. Somebody lied to you. Oh, I'm all Peart. I would have nailed that one. Peart. <laughs> Matt Peart, UConn. So I, that's it, my guy. It's worth you know we've been talking about some of the other podcasts that PFF has. Um, it's worth listening to the forecast just to hear Eric try and pronounce Tua Tagovailoa because it is, it's something special. I don't know what he does to it, but there's like an extra syllable in the back somewhere that doesn't belong there. Eric's the man. He, I, we joke all the time. He only has room in his brain for the numbers that are flowing through there. He doesn't have room to remember to like pick up his coffee cup at the office or, or put the cap back on the coffee so it stays hot. He doesn't right. have time for pronunciation. The thing about Tua, though, he, he's given you an out. He is one of those few guys in sports. Right, you say a, Tua. He's a first-name guy, right? Like, yeah. for now, when you say Lamar, you know who Lamar is, mm-hmm. right? When you say Tua, there's only one Tua. You just, you just, you, you say the last name one time, 
And for the rest of the show, you could get away with just saying Tua. That's the rule. Tungavailoa, by the way. God, I really hope that the uh, the notification sounds on this computer don't come through this call because this thing has just been spamming me with notifications. I'm not hearing thirty it, seconds. So. That's right? a good sign because it was pissing me off. I don't know about anyone else. All right, a couple more names. How about Jalen Hurts from Oklahoma? I I, I struggle with it. He's one of those guys where just like the data kind of points to it, and I'll explain why maybe the data doesn't point to it as well. Do you have any Jalen Hurts thoughts? I just, I don't buy it. I, I'm not, I think, so sometimes, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that can skew the overall grade, right? And point you to a certain conclusion that wouldn't necessarily be supported if you remove all of those other things, right? And that's why, you know, when it comes to cornerbacks, the overall grade might say something, but then what is it in single coverage? What is it in all your critical factors? When you look, when you start stripping out all the other things that influence just coverage, what does it do to the grade then? <clears throat> Same thing obviously is true with quarterbacks, whether it's protection, whether it's receivers, whether it's offensive scheme, whatever, right? There's a ton of different things that influence quarterback play. I think all of them went in Hurts' favor when he went to Oklahoma. Um, and then I think all the things that he struggles at will be way bigger problems at the NFL level. Like I think fundamentally, he just does things too slowly for me to buy into that being successful. I, I think more and more this idea of processing speed and being able to function quickly is really important for young quarterbacks. And I think particularly if you're, if you're a young quarterback that's not going to go top 10 where the team has already bought into you, right? Like if you're Joe Burrow, Joe Burrow is drafted number one overall. The team has bought into him. He has a lot of rope with which to hang himself before they finally go, all right, screw it, we've given up, we're out. If you're drafted like in the second or third round, you don't. You, you've got a very limited amount of time with which to work, if you get any time at all. So you don't have the luxury of like, all right, it's going to take me two years of the game to slow down enough for me to be able to do what I do well. If you're already behind the curve when it comes to processing speed and holding on to the ball too long, you're done. I just don't see how that can work out. Yeah, Jalen, there's a lot to debate internally with Hurts. Here's, here's the comparison I'm going to use, right? And, and thank you to Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray for this, right? We now have many years of Oklahoma quarterback data in this system, right? So in a vacuum, you look at Jalen Hurts. He had an 89.4 passing grade last year, which is really good, right? That, mm-hmm. That's great. We, we, we pride ourselves on this, these production grades. However, when you compare it to other Big 12 quarterbacks, and more specifically the Oklahoma quarterbacks, it's actually a huge difference because Baker and Kyler were both at 94 right. the p- couple previous years. So my comparison to that is, in a vacuum, p- people always talk about Bill Belichick say, uh, getting Matt Castle to an 11-5 and season. And you're like, hey, that's, that's great. How did he get Matt Castle? How did they have an 11-5 and season? Well, if you look at it through the lens of it was a 16-0 and team the year before, and then they went to 11 and 5. Right. It's like, okay, it's a little less impressive, right? In a vacuum, it's good. But when you compare it to what was actually on the team, that was a, a team, the only undefeated team uh, since the 72 Dolphins during the regular season. That was an incredible team that he essentially took over. So I think the perspective is important. So an 89.4 cover, uh, passing grade for Hertz is, is good, but it's not nearly what we saw from a Baker Mayfield or from a Kyler Murray in that same system with similar receivers, similar play caller, Lincoln Riley, and all that stuff. So um, I just look at the rushing ability, which is good, not great. 
Um, his ability to hit open throws. Like there's all these numbers that kind of point you in the right direction for Jalen Hurts to where I think I'm willing to take that flyer on him. So that's, I think, where I stand on Jalen Hurts. But I won't feel great about it for the reasons you said. Um, yeah. All right, let's wrap it to up. Me, with, to me, he's just a quarterback where I don't, I honestly don't see there's a way it pans out at the NFL level. I'm, I'm, he's the kind of guy that I'm willing to be wrong on that, but I'm willing to, I wanted someone else to take the shot at it. I just, I just don't think there's a chance. So I'm going to roll with someone that I think has a better shot at that than, than the guy that I just, like I say, someone else can take the shot at it. And if I'm wrong on that, fine. I just don't think the chance is big enough that it's worth taking a swing at. I'll, let's wrap it up with, with your boy, Bravey and Roy, and then I'm going to give you my, my five <laughs> value stealers in the draft because I'm going to write an article on that. So we'll, I'll, I'll run through those guys real quick. But Bravey and Roy from Baylor, Sam. I challenge anybody to watch this guy's tape and not just start giggling. It's it's hilarious. Like, <laughs> he reminds me of somebody, and I can't think who it is. You said BJ Raji and I can see what you mean but I think Raji is sort of sure on his feet than Roy was or Roy is he's just this like human pinball who somehow is this like nimble fleet-footed 330 pound monster who like rushes the passer and like gets through gaps and it's just it's hilarious watching him play because you know, he'll, he'll be shooting an A-gap and a guy will come over and blast him in the side to try and help the sender out. And somehow that just like pinballs him into the other gap and <laughs> spins off it and starts, you know, rolling after the quarterback. It's just, it's utterly hilarious. And I have no idea why it's working, but it but, is. And I love it. But that was Raji because that was, that was back when finding a, remember Vince Wilfork got drafted and, it, and you know, guys that were 330 pounds were coveted back then because a lot of teams were running a 3-4 and they wanted a true nose tackle. And they wanted a guy that could two-gap. And Vince Wilfork was like the prototype. Like, he was the guy, right? You had Casey Hampton. You had all these guys that could do it. But then you had B.J. Raji, who looked like that, but mm. then he played like Aaron Donald. Like, he wanted right. to shoot gaps. He wanted to play like he was 280, but he was 330. I'm watching Bravey and Roy at 330 shooting gaps and being quick. And the second he tries to hold up against the double team, He's the library ladder getting slid across the room, right? Like he's flying all over the place, not playing like a 330 pounder. Okay. One, that is an outstanding metaphor that should be used in draft parlance. You should do, start that right now. <laughs> the library ladder. I stole uh, it from uh, Jerry Thornton of, uh, oh, of no. Barstool. Yeah. Damn it. But That's I, a good one. But I can make it. I can make it you, my own. Just act like it was yours. Let no me ask alone. him. I'll send him a DM. Um, so yeah, that's really good. So the difference, I think BJ Raji was legitimately just a three tech who weighed 330 pounds. Like that was his problem is that I think he was a really good penetrating three tech pass rusher, but because he was 330, he was immediately stuck at nose tackle and just told like, that was his gig, right? I think he was just miscast. And there was a few guys that were like that. Remember like Alan Branch, I think had the same problem, right? Yeah. It was like, you're a three technique. You just happen to be like 320 pounds. So you're never going to have the shot to do it. Um, the, Roy, I think is slightly different because I don't think that he's this like explosive quick first step. I think he's like nimble is the word, right? It's he's weirdly nimble for a guy that's that size. He's this like fire hydrant who's got like dancing feet and just seems to somehow make it work. Um, I don't know what that is at the next level, but it's fun to watch. Hashtag fun to watch. Bravian Roy from Baylor. Love it. Let me 
let me wrap this up unless you have anyone else you want to discuss. Because this is like, it's like open forum right here, Sam. It's it's our it show. Is. We can talk about any players. We, it's just player-driven podcast today. Talk about guys you like. Um, so the thing I said about Matt Peart earlier, right? I think there are points in the draft where the bets are low risk, but the payouts are high. And, those, you know, the middle rounds, right? So I think the perspective on that is usually this guy's a great athlete, therefore the payout must be high. I'm going to look at it slightly differently. I'm going to look at position changes and guys who graded well, whatever. And these are the these are the places you can steal value. The first guy is Matt Parrott from UConn, right? A guy that's already graded well, has, hasn't played a ton of football, has the length, movement skills, has all the stuff you want out of an offensive tackle and still has room to grow. You might be able to steal a free offensive tackle in the middle rounds with Matt Parrott from UConn. And the thing that reminded me of this was uh, Jordan Mailata from the Eagles, right? The fact that you just take a rugby star and maybe he's an, an eventual offensive tackle. Like, I'll take that bet every single time. Um, Darren Waller for the Raiders. All of a sudden, wide receiver conversion, had off-field issues, and before you know it, he's one of the best pass-catching uh, tight ends in the NFL. And then the 49ers had a tight end slash offensive tackle in Daniel Brunskill a couple years ago, who was another guy who graded pretty well for us, and he's be you know, he was an undersized tight end that they've turned into like a legitimate contributor on their team. There's a similar, so I'm just trying to look at these players in the draft. So I think Matt Parrott's one of them. Uh, Ball State guard Danny Pinter is very similar to Brunskill. He played tight end. Uh, Renner loves him as a Joe Tooney type. He'll be around in the middle rounds as a potential starting guard in a zone scheme. Like if you're going to find a starting guard in the middle rounds, that's a steal. Danny Pinter from Ball State could be that guy. Um, and then maybe my favorite of this whole group, Louisiana takes uh, Louisiana Tech safety, Legarius Sneed, played free safety last year, had played outside corner at Louisiana Tech. Most of his bad plays came trying to play press in the slot where he's just bad, but he's got legit free safety skills, ran under a 4-4 at the combine, six foot, got some length, like some team needs to draft him and just convert him back to cornerback because the draft capital won't be high for him but the payout could be tremendous. So I, I just think there are certain guys that are worth it. They truly do have upside because there's something to their game. Like if Snead develops into an outside corner and Pinter becomes your starting guard and Parrott develops an offensive tackle, the payout is just ridiculous. So I think what those guys with, are... Uh, yeah. like under undersung Louisiana Tech players over the past couple of years? Between Amik Robertson, Snead... Uh, Boston Scott, Jamar Smith, they've had a ton of guys we liked. Xavier Woods? Big yeah. Xavier Woods fan. Um, uh, another one guy that we should probably mention in terms of a name that we're higher on than I think most people, um, Jonah Jackson, the guard from Ohio State. Um, just fantastic pass blocking ability and, and technique and skills, and that's the kind of thing that I think could translate really quickly, and I don't think anybody is considering him particularly high in the draft, honestly. Yeah, I think, so I still think that interior offensive line play starts with the run game for most people. Like, if you look, Renner's comp for Jonah Jackson was Josh Sitton. And if you just tweet the name Josh Sitton, Hall of Famer, question mark, right? No, but if you did a poll, is Josh Sitton a Hall of Famer? You'd probably get 2% who said yes. Now do give it. Do it now. Now give me a good give me a good rogue road grading guard that people Carl Nix. Like if you said Carl Nix, it'd be like fifty fifty. You know, I mean, it would be 
it would just be different. Like people just don't value pass protection on the interior. When Jonah Jackson's profile is potentially really good pass protector and, you know, average to good run blocker. And he's the only guy in this class, I think, who has that profile, who you feel much better. Maybe Ben Bredesen from Michigan, but he's like well below average from a run blocking standpoint. Jonah Jackson projects as reasonable run blocker, potentially excellent pass blocker, which makes us a little bit higher on him because we'd value that more. But And I, I mentioned the Josh Sitton stuff, if you guys don't know, because he's probably the best pass protecting guard that we've seen since we it's, started. Not he probably. Is. It, it is. I mean, he's got like the three no or four argument. best seasons, right? I mean, yeah. it wasn't even close. And he doesn't get the hype as even like a Marquise Pouncey at center for the, uh, for the Steelers. Um, you know, like Alan Fanica. Right. Alan Fanica is a guy that is he gets Hall of Fame discussion because he used to just destroy people. And he was a stealer and he was tough and all this stuff. Josh Sitton's not going to get that. Josh Sitton was like the Joe Thomas of guards during their era from a pass protection standpoint. So that's why I think Jonah Jackson would be the guy that we um, were higher on because smooth pass sets. You, you, you can handle power. I think he can handle speed. And, you know, he's, he's underrated in this draft. Yeah, I mean, Sitton had multiple seasons where he allowed, like, less than 10 pressures in the year. So, you know, 16 games, it's like, it's almost one every other game. Like, that's absurd from a pass protection standpoint. When you consider there are guards that are capable of almost single-handedly torpedoing your offense by being bad enough that there's just a constant stream of pressure coming in versus a guy like Josh Sitton, who is basically... Not gonna, you're literally never gonna feel the impact of his guy for half the games in the year, and for the other half, you're gonna feel it once. Like, right. That's a pretty good trade off. Um, just you know, so you guys know, like the the piece I'm working on this week about stable and unstable metrics. This has been after the years of research that we've put into it, and the difference between a tackle, what what you're looking for in a tackle, and what you're looking for in an interior lineman is the tackles. They're negatively graded plays in the run game are actually more stable. Like, so if you've got uh, low negatives, you can kind of bank on that year to year. If you have high positives, a lot of times that's scheme driven on the interior. It's the opposite. So the guys that do create a lot of positives, that is actually more stable. So when you are looking at evaluating interior offensive linemen, you do look at their good more often, so to speak. And with tackles, you kind of look at their bad more often, uh, so to speak. And that's what you can kind of project. So you do want a guard that's going to, you know, win a lot in the run game to project him. The same thing with center, uh, but you can't forget about pass protection on the interior, especially in today's NFL. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, man. That was fun. That was a fun podcast. It's like PFF guys and who were a little bit higher on than most, all of our underrated teams. So that'll wrap it up for today's show. I think next week, Sam, we're just going to let the, uh, let the stories, let the anonymous scouts, oh, God. let them dictate the action, right? We should have a whole anonymous scout section, right? We got to get to the Makai Becton eats too much take and all the things that come out. Let's just do that now because it's funny. So some anonymous scout is complaining that Makai Becton likes cooking and eating more than he likes uh, football. And as Eric just kind of pointed out, there's also a tweet from Mitchell Schwartz of the salad. I use salad in inverted commas because it's just like a, I can't see greenery in it. This is like a bowl of chicken, avocado, bacon, eggs, everything but anything you would think of as a salad. Anyway, this is a giant bowl of food, right? 
and Schwartz has this whole thing where it's like what Mitch in the kitchen or whatever it is, Chef Schwartz, where he's just cooking up all kinds of stuff. Also, coincidentally, is probably the best right tackle in the NFL right now. How so? Counterpoint, not a Pro Bowler. No, not multiple a time All Pro though, and just not- maybe the greatest stretch of postseason play in tackle history. Um, I'm gonna tweet, wait, if I tweet, maybe if Mitchell Schwartz got out of the kitchen, he'd be a pro bowler. <laughs> Do yeah, you think he should. A, all right. No, I find that funny. Um, but anyway, it's like, you know, you're complaining that this guy likes food too much. And then all the way over here, literally the best player at his position in the league has like a website dedicated to his cooking. Like it's just on the face of it. It's absurd. Let's see how this tweet goes over. <laughs> yeah. Anonymous scout season. I think we should take the best and, and break it down. Oh, no. I, I get too angry. I can't. I, anyway, next it, next it week, me. it's a special week. We're going to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, so mm-hmm. Monday and Wednesday, we'll hit on all of the draft buzz, maybe answer some of your questions. We'll respond to all of the late news leading up to the draft. And then Friday, we'll react to the craziness that is sure to be the first round. So thanks to everybody for tuning in. See all you guys on Monday. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did go check out kyler murray and his nfl debut that's my favorite thing about nfl game pass you can go back and watch at any time and if you haven't watched a condensed game yet you have to try it out it's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire nfl game in the fraction of the time it normally takes it's how i'm able to follow all the mvp candidates all the breakout stars and of course your waiver wire pickups all season long to see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL.